pinpoint attacks are supposed to represent a clean warfare, a humane way to fight that minimises death. It took more than a century to refine the treaties and conventions that protect civilians. But does the pursuit of so-called humane war make conflict more frequent and long-lasting? Yale University law professor Samuel Moyne argues just that in the book titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. He joined me from Connecticut. So I wrote this book really in response to living through President Barack Obama's time in office when what happened disturbed me. He understood that the war on terror had been made less legitimate because it had been fought brutally with detainee abuse and especially with torture. And so in his first days, he turned away from those policies. But we now know what he did is to change the nature of the war, to rely less on big interventions and heavy troop counts and more on armed drones and small bands of special forces. He escaped the opprobrium that George Bush did because he didn't capture anyone. They were just killed. Once this became known, he gave a speech at the National Defense University in 2014 in which he said, I have no alternative, but at least I'm fighting Mm. this new shadow war humanely. And so what I wanted to do is look in the longest perspective at the way in which we hope that the cause of peace goes together with the cause of humanity and warfare, but that from the beginning, some have worried that they would conflict and we'd get humane warfare allowing the perpetuation of warfare. And I fear that's what has happened in my country's recent history. I found this a really challenging, in a very good way, but a really challenging book, Sam, because I wondered, is the choice so stark as saying that we either have no war, no matter what the threat, no matter what the provocation, simply no war, or we have a war without rules, because it's only total war that illustrates the inhumanity of war. I hope not, because it would just be a catastrophic choice. Maybe there are wars that are worth fighting. I do a lot with outright pacifists, notably Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, but I'm not myself one. And I think that the long quest to make war more humane when sadly it breaks out is a noble one. The question is whether in striving to make war more humane, we might court a risk that we should control. The reason I stress it is just because I think we've not just kind of courted that risk, we've incurred it. We've lived through a period in which we've allowed politicians to tell us that the humanity of endless war makes it morally appropriate. And I think what we learn in the long run is that, at least in many cases, it's not. It's not like a matter of choosing brutal war instead, as if that's the only alternative to a a kind of pacifist stance. But I think it is incumbent upon us to make sure we don't allow humane war to become a kind of a recipe for eternal war as it's become in the war on terror. 
Yeah, how many interventions, by the way, are we talking about that the United States principally has made since um, the end of the Cold War, which, uh, of course, at the time was celebrated as the triumph of liberal internationalism over communism? How many interventions are we talking about here that have become these perpetual wars? Well, it depends on how you count, but we're talking about hundreds. You know, some of them were peacekeeping missions, some under United Nations auspices. But what I would say is that while we can see early signs of interventionism under Bill Clinton, you really see something extraordinary with September 11th. In fairness, George W. Bush himself, while he did start the first war on terror or the first form of it, kind of restricted that to two places with lots of troops. And so it was the disturbing thing that under Barack Obama, as that first form of the war on terror began to look like it wasn't working, Obama turned to invent a second form of the war on terror, which involved upwards of 10 countries and lots and lots of drone strikes, something on the order of 500. And maybe most extraordinary, the aggressive use of special forces, small bands of men who don't stay, visit to kill. The evidence shows that by the end of his term, U.S. special forces set foot in about 70% of the world's countries in a given year. So that's like 150 or 160 countries. That's extraordinary, and it's new, and I think it's scary. That's a revelation, I think, to most of us. I thought Obama's interventions were these drone strikes in in Afghanistan, very controversial because it often involved, as you illustrate uh, so powerfully, bombing wedding parties. But where else were these drone strikes, or where else were these interventions that Obama made in the interests of quote-unquote humanity? There was like the most the unlikely places. <laughs> well, so in fairness, there are the likelier ones like across the border in Pakistan. But then you have Somalia and Yemen and then lots of places in sub-Saharan Africa where in the Obama years, a whole kind of drone empire with lots of infrastructure, new bases, new base agreements kind of sprang up. We're talking on the order of 10 to 13 places where drones actively struck in those years. But the major ones were Somalia and Yemen outside the kind of AFPAC theater, as they call it, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Sam, you started thinking very deeply about this issue in the 1990s during the Balkan conflict. What was your initial reaction to the human rights abuses in the former Yugoslavia, especially the suffering of the Bosnian people, that kind of got you thinking about these humane interventions and later their complications? First, I think we should distinguish two different things. One is humanitarian intervention that takes place with the goal of saving people from especially crimes against humanity or genocide. And absolutely, that tradition, though it has a really old history, especially in Christians saving fellow Christians from the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, it was renewed after 1989, as people in some places really did feel they needed a solution to the frightening incidents in the time of peace of these gross violations. There's a separate matter, though, which is whatever the justification of force, how is the fighting conducted? And I think what we've seen is that 
it's not always the case that America claims to be conducting humanitarian interventions in its wars. It did in, famously in the case of Libya in 2011 and made that country much worse as a result. But even when it's just conducting counterterrorism in its own self-interest, America has tried to make it more humanely imposed. And I wrote the book not solely thinking about humanitarian intervention, but thinking about Barack Obama's speeches where he promised Americans that it was all right to keep going in this endless counterterrorism because he would minimize civilian casualties. For example, he promised that drones wouldn't strike if there was any risk of them at all. Now, that wasn't true, but it testified to a kind of new ethic that politicians and their audiences were bringing to war in our time. You've talked uh, in the book about Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist. He had a fascinating parallel that he drew between the idea of a just or humane war and slavery. What was the, the parallel there? So when Tolstoy wrote War and Peace in the 1860s, it was just at that time that the Swiss were inventing the whole idea of humane war, and they got European powers together in 1864 to create the first Geneva Convention, which had the purpose of allowing private citizens to go out on battlefields and help the soldiers who were bleeding out, wounded. And it was something that Tolstoy in that period found worrisome. Already then, although I think he was way too early, he was anxious that making war humane would lengthen it. So he offered two really interesting analogies. First, he said, we should think back to the abolition of slavery, which was just occurring at that time in my country, as well as in his with the abolition of serfdom. And Tolstoy said, look, for a long time, there was no abolitionism. There was just a project of making slavery kinder and gentler. No one challenged the property rights in human beings that slaveholders enjoyed, but the law did require slaveholders to treat their chattel less cruelly. And Tolstoy worried, did that give slavery a second lease on life, a longer time period to do its evil work? And actually, some historians think it did. And so Tolstoy basically says, be careful that you're not entrenching a practice you could end. In our case, I take from his reflection the moral that we should just take care when we support making war humane, which we should, that we're not forgetting that we need a justification for having the war we're fighting. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking with Professor Sam Moyne about Sam's new book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. You talk there, Sam, about the first Geneva Convention in the mid-19th century. And of course, there were subsequent Geneva Conventions just after World War II. But what kind of rules did various European statesmen actually try to codify about the so-called humane conduct of war? 
Well, actually, very few for a very long time. So that's why Tolstoy's critique didn't really apply very well, because so little of the content of the laws of war was about making it more humane. After all, these treaties were made by states with militaries in the room whose main goal was to apply maximum force. And of course, we know in wars throughout the 19th and 20th century, they did so. And that was especially true as aerial bombardment became a possibility with no rules under the laws of war. So I look pretty late in the story. It's true that there are newer and newer rules, including in the Geneva Conventions after World War II, protecting interned soldiers, prisoners of war. But the big breakthrough, as I see it, comes in the 1970s for a few interesting reasons. And in that period, states get together and decide that let's say war itself has to be humane, not just kind of what's on the margins of it, like what happens to soldiers when they're captured, but that you can't target a civilian. The first time that is codified is in 1977. And along with it, a new expectation that you limit collateral damage is also codified. And that changes a lot because it affects air war, which before then had really had no rules. You really could just bomb cities, as happened with morale bombing famously in World War II, as well as in in the case of my country in Korea and Vietnam. After 1977, that wasn't allowed, at least in theory and in practice, I think, to a large extent. The figures that you bring out, by the way, are stunning here. World War II, it's just, uh, it's worth remembering. 20 million soldiers died, quote unquote, legally. 5 million prisoners of war died illegally from mistreatment. 50 million civilians, including most obviously 6 million Jews, died because they were directly or indirectly targeted. But then, of course, proportionally, that's topped by Korea. Four million people died in just three years in the Korean War. We forget about that. That's right. Korea, I think, was kind of the worst and I think most brutal war that my country's fought, just in terms of the relative loss of life. And the techniques used there, really on both sides, show no moral reflection after World War II. It's just five years before, but aerial bombardment and really the raising of the landscape had not come to seem beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do in the book is show how late it was that it came to seem immoral, such that not just states allowed, but publics demanded limits especially in aerial bombardment. Sam, just as we wind up, there's an interesting set of bookends, as it were. In 1969, there's the revelation of the My Lai Massacre, in which hundreds of people, innocent Vietnamese, were slaughtered in a village by US troops. 35 years later, Seymour Hersh, who broke the story about the My Lai Massacre, reveals another very sickening episode of US war crimes at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Is there a thread or an attitude or an ideology that kind of links these events? I think if we consider them, we actually can get a pretty serious contrast and suggest that something big has happened in between. 
in a certain way, the revelations at Abu Ghraib led to an unprecedented focus on atrocity and war and a torture debate about whether that practice in particular ought to be allowed, really without parallel in modern history. And as a result of that, the war did change. And as I mentioned, Obama in his first days in office very demonstratively ripped up memos allowing torture. But when we we press the comparison even further, I think we should consider how different the outcome was from the perspective, not of humanity, but of peace. After all, by 1969, there had been a lot of anti-war mobilization in the United States. And in a certain way, the Milai revelations added fuel to a pre-existing fire that helped bring the war to an end. The Abu Ghraib revelations functioned in approximately the opposite way. There was no anti-war movement to speak of. I mean, there was a big protest when the Iraq war was looming, but there hasn't been even to this day a big amount of opposition to the war on terror as such. After Abu Ghraib, in spite of this kind of lessening enthusiasm for the war on terror, it was renewed in a more humane way. So unlike after Mi Lai, if you like, the bug of inhumanity was removed from the program of the war on terror, which each of those three presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden, continues to fight. This is an outcome I think we should get really concerned about when we don't press hard enough for peace and allow our concerns about inhumanity just to kind of change the form of war, make it not just less visible, but more humane, and yet without a clear end. Always challenging and always stimulating to talk to you. Professor Sam Moyne of Yale University. Sam's book is called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you, Andrew. And you're with me, Andrew West. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.